0: But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This far reading God's word. In in verse one, Jesus taught crowds, we're told, which means that now he's again teaching in public. One of the basic ingredients of life, the topic of marriage. What could be a more foundational building block of society? Than marriage. The main point in application to Christians today from this passage is clear divorce is forbidden since it dishonors God and threatens stability of families, churches, and societies. So, see first how breaking God built marriages begins with the bad practice of twisting scripture. Secondly, it exposes the bad condition of hardness of heart. And thirdly, that it leads to bad consequences of more sin. So, first, Breaking God-built marriages begins with the bad practice of twisting Scripture, verses 1 through 4. We're up to verse 2, where the Pharisees wanted to test Jesus. This is a, a negative word. They were trying to tempt him, a word that Mark used in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, about Satan's approach to Jesus was to tempt or to test him. Same word here. They're asking him a gotcha question, wanting him to fail. And the question is this, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Verse 3, In characteristic fashion for the wisest human who ever lived, Jesus turned the question back to the questioners and pointed them back to the other writings of God through Moses, writings that neither side on this controversy had considered in their debates. In verse 4, Pharisees said, What Moses taught is divorce is allowed. What a terrible summary of what Moses wrote in its twisting scripture. They were referring to a controversy at that time about the meaning of a particular passage in the Bible. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read part of it, but then I'm going to stop and I'll just summarize it because it's exceedingly complicated. And I believe that it's helpful if if I just summarize the last part. So Deuteronomy 24, beginning with verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. I'm stopping there. The rest of that passage is pretty complicated. It goes like this. If a man divorced a woman and she married a second man, and then the second man divorced her, then the first man was not allowed to remarry her again. The passage is not saying divorce is permitted but rather that when divorce was happening, you're not allowed to let the scenario descend into full social chaos. Uh, The debate about interpreting that verse was about, as you might guess, I tried to hint in the way that I was reading it, what constituted this phrase, when a man found a wife, a wife found no favor in her husband's eyes. What does that mean? And what did he find when he has found some indecency in her? What does that mean? Does it mean this much, or can you drive a Mack truck through some indecency in her? So the debates, you could imagine, about divorce in those days went back and forth. Some people said it would need to be proven adultery. Other people said nearly anything could count, even if, and this is written in the Jewish records, the commentaries about Scripture, that she accidentally burned a meal and served it to her husband, grounds for divorce, some would say, based on these verses. So the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus into getting into this debate, taking one side or the other of the two sides in a heated, ongoing, terrible debate. Either way, they would have an automatic argument to use against Jesus, and that would be the trick. So the Pharisees wanted to talk about divorce. Jesus insisted on talking about marriage. The Pharisees' primary interest was seeing how far people could go and still remain within the letter of the law. Could I get rid of her and still obey the law of God? It's not a very godly notion. In contrast, the primary interest of Jesus was restoring people to the kind of home life for which they had been created. And then in addition, for which Jesus had come to redeem and supply. So it brings us to our second point. Breaking God-built marriages exposes the bad condition of hardness of heart. It takes our Savior to introduce this into the debate. Verse 5, Jesus clarified how the Pharisees had exactly twisted the words of God through Moses. Moses had only written about permitting divorce because of the hardness of the hearts of the people who had made such a mess of things. That some regulations regarding multiple divorce, multiple remarriages had become necessary. The phrase hardness of heart here picks up on a frequent Old Testament accusation against God's people. Remember this phrase? They're stiff necked. Hardness of heart is another way of saying stiff necked. Uh, you put it into common English stubborn. You <laughs> ever heard, heard of that? Stubborn, rebellious. Hardened it against God is the core idea. So Jesus is using new words, hardness of heart, but he's picking up on that whole stream of Old Testament thought, stiff-necked. Furthermore, here Jesus, in just a few words, this whole passage is brief, in just a few words went deeper and earlier than Moses in order to explain to the Pharisees and the crowds what was originally God's best vision for their homes, for their marriages. Since principles of design take precedent over principles of remedy and repair, it's best, when there's a question, to return to the original design. If you would just focus on what marriage is supposed to be, a lot of these controversies about divorce would evaporate. So in verse 6, Jesus introduces a more fundamental consideration. Here, Jesus is no longer drawing from the law code given by Moses on Mount Sinai, but much earlier, still also written by Moses. He goes back to the book of Genesis. You understand that the first five books of the Bible are all the books of Moses, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are are called the books of Moses. So it's still written by Moses, and yet it's not in the Mount Sinai law code. Instead, he's drawing from now the first days of the world, the original order and structure of creation, even before the fall into sin by Adam. And so here in verse 6, Jesus quotes from Genesis 1:27, Made male and female, God, I'm sorry, male and female, God created them. Or as he, he, he says it here in our uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 6, verse, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So male and female, God created them, or God made them male and female. In other words, since marriage was started as a permanent union into a one flesh manner between a man and a woman, then it always must be against the will of God the Creator for a marriage that God built with two people that God created to be broken by some human being. It always has to be against the design of God. When Moses conceded certain permissions for divorce, it was not pointing to the way things ought to be. God explained the way things ought to be in Genesis 1. The way things ought to be is one unique female puzzle piece and one unique male puzzle piece, both fitted together into one solved and completed puzzle. A beautiful thing. That mystery of marriage and marriages staying together in precisely the way that God designed for them in general and assembled them in particular, that God has joined them together. The marriage vision for the kingdom of God must not be based on some concession to human failure and limits around that. That's not where we start. That's not where we get our core ideas. Rather, the way we view marriage in the kingdom of God should be based on the original, beautiful pattern for marriage set out by the creator of man, the creator of woman, who are then a perfect match for each other. Think of it this way. The man was created with all of his regular parts as now exist before she even existed. And then he took a rib from man to make woman and made her as a perfect match for him. So This is the original design that Jesus already points them back to in just a few words and then he continues in verse 7. This is how it's supposed to work for all marriages. What is so special about these two is that God, not only in the creation, but now in his additional, perfect, providential care of all things and their lives, has guided the whole world in such a way that that exact man and that exact woman now meet Now they court and date and the process and eventually get married, and the two have become one. They've become a team. They've become a unit, a family unit, if you will, that is so close, so tight, operating so well that they became as one. One what? Do you realize how difficult this is to describe? The language that's used here is one flesh. You could say one home, one couple, one flesh is the best way that we could describe this. So be it. And so Jesus is emphasizing to them with a beautiful statement now in verse 8. So, dot, 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 therefore, because of that, here comes this big statement. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus is pointing them back to the beautiful vision that is so grand it's hard to describe it's so great it's actually something of a mystery to even grasp it he's pointing them back to this something so beautiful that has happened that we've run past the ability of language to describe this oneness that god has caused by joining together a man and his wife what is it that is this beauty this glory, this thing that only God would be able to do and assemble, that the two are no longer two. How is that beautiful? Because they've become one. Still two persons, a man and a woman, and yet they've become one flesh, one team, one unified home, that God himself has joined and fused them together in some way that it's absolutely marvelous. The design of God is for the union of man and woman to become permanent and indivisible. Marriage, you see, is being lifted up by our savior the Lord Jesus from being more than just a mere contract of mutual convenience for activity and actions such that for example it's it's easier to run a farm when one is in the field and one is in the house making supper. It's so much more than just the division of domestic duties to be convenient. It's so much better than that. It's so much higher than that. The goal and vision that God has in mind here is huge and deep. It's now raised or deepened to the level of status of being. It's not just what we do. These are the tasks of a husband. These are tasks of a wife. It's who we are are not who i am and who you are and what we make up as a team it's who we are it's the status of being it's no longer a matter of whether the one flesh union should not be separated but rather the one flesh union cannot be separated it just can't be it's not a question of whether there would be more or less efficient if they were apart because there would be less strife in arguing or more or less happy if they were apart or together. We make the arguments based on our conjecture of what might be or could become. But the emphasis rather is on the fact that we're well past the time when they were apart. They just are together now in a way that God himself has intervened and caused, such that no one can separate them without fundamental damage to their very persons. So that what we have in marriage is no longer two independent beings who may choose to go their way, but rather we have in marriage a single, indivisible unit. The best illustration I can come up with is to take two uncooked eggs, super glue them together next to each other. Now, don't cook them yet. Just try to separate them. Without breaking them, without cooking them, just try to separate them, not doing any damage to either egg. Best example I can come up with, how do we describe the beauty of what God has done in creating marriages? We cannot separate what God has joined together without making a mess. And need I add, A painful mess for everyone. Who did that joining together of two? Not the minister. Not just the husband. Not just the wife. Not the two of them together as a team. Not two clans deciding this is a good idea. Who joined the two together and made that beautiful unit that is so difficult to put into words? It's so beautiful. Who did that? I tried to help you with the title of the sermon. What God Joined Together. We best not take credit for what God does here, but more to the point, who makes divorce? Who decides on a rupture? Who decides on a separation? Who decides that the papers should be signed? Who decides on that rupture? It's man. It's always man. Never did we get God saying that divorce should happen in this instance. So the teaching of Jesus in verse 9 is just repairing all of their misunderstandings that divorce is to be rejected because it's initiated by a human being, not initiated by God. What God has joined together, let no human separate, because you don't have the authority. Man does not have the authority to disassemble what God alone could assemble and has assembled. Divorce is forbidden because the human decision to destroy a piece of artwork, irreplaceable, that God himself has made. Divorce is not allowed because it starts with human initiation. So the one flesh condition is a fact. It's not a matter of ongoing, continued choice of two persons as if it were operating like this. They they reach their anniversary date and they they sit down for dinner once a year and they decide, shall we re-up for another year or not? It's, it's not like that at all. No way. It does not operate like that. It's not contingent on the two persons continually making a decision. No. The one flesh condition is not continued only until either or both of those persons opt for a different choice, and at that moment the one flesh condition evaporates. No. The one flesh condition exists It's a fact. It's a reality. Marriage is for life, and it's for all of life. So you share the home. You share the relatives. You share everything. And anything that goes against that marriage unit is going against the God who built it. So Jesus made this incredible statement that the Pharisees could not possibly have fully understood at this moment. Here's a statement of Jesus that's been repeated at thousands of weddings ever since. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The human initiation must not try to undo what God has done to untie the knot that God has tied to make two persons out of what God has made one flesh. The man must not try to separate himself from the wife. The wife must not try to separate herself from her husband. No other person must insert themselves and try to break up this home. Not his sister or her brother. Not his best friend or her best friend. Not her lawyer or his lawyer or her mother or his mother. Not an old boyfriend or a girlfriend. Not a child or a grandchild. As well-meaning as they might be, no one should be trying to pull apart what God has glued together. How refreshing it was for Jesus to step into this moment and take this trick question and provide such foundational, uh, creation oriented retraining. He steps up and teaches this wrong headed context of a crowd and Pharisees with a clear sighted vision for the community to return to a vision the way it was meant to be. There's such compelling simplicity here. That brings us to our third point. So, Jesus has completed speaking to the crowd, the things I've tried to unpack here. And verse 10, in the house means the disciples were now alone with Jesus. The crowd has dissipated or Jesus and the disciples have left. They're now in a house. And over the last few chapters, you may have noticed, every time they're in the house, it means there's privacy now for the disciples to ask questions to Jesus and for Jesus to answer them without having to interact with the Pharisees. So they could ask him confidential questions to make them look silly "...without publicly bringing shame on themselves and their rabbi." So the Pharisees were in need of reorientation and retraining on this very topic. They still didn't get it. So verses 11 and 12, Jesus makes this statement privately now to his disciples. "...whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery." How could a divorce result in adultery?" Because the original one-flesh union was inseparable, and so the purported divorce certificate did not change that. They were still married in God's eyes, if you will, or some people like to say it. So Jesus was in verse 11 looking out for the rights of that wife with the words at the very end of verse 11, commits adultery against her. It's a sin not just vertically against God, but it's a sin against another person, the person to whom you were married, the person to whom you're supposed to be married. And similarly, in verse 12, Jesus saw himself as the teacher and savior of both men and women. And for Jesus to say this in that day is a remarkable equality of the sexes in terms of responsibility, in terms of categories of sin, in terms of resulting consequences from their actions. It's clearly adultery, breaking the seventh commandment, initiated by either the man or the woman. So here in Mark 10 what we've seen is that in just a few words, Jesus managed to discourage divorce, refute the wrong interpretation of Scripture by the Pharisees, reaffirm the true meaning of Scripture about marriage, censure the guilty party, defend the innocent, and uphold the sacredness of a marriage bond as ordained by God. Praise God for the wisdom and ability of our Savior. Before we move to our application points, let's talk about our Savior a bit more. You understand Christ's faithfulness to us is really what marriage points to, every marriage points to. There's really only one marriage. It's between Christ the groom and us, the church, his bride. That God will not separate himself from us when he finds something disappointing in us, finds something unfaithful in us. Christ is our husband, and we, collectively as the church, are his bride. Paul wrote about this in the classic marriage passage in Ephesians 5, listen starting with verse 25, Ephesians 5:25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that Christ died for us as his people, and that's what we need to know, that's what we need to remember as we think about marriage, as we think about Our instances and the ones that we're counseling or coaching or helping, that Christ died for us as his people. That earthly husbands are to love their wives this way. For a Christian man as a husband to approach his wife in the right way is to approach her in a Christian way, to approach her as Christ would, to give up self for her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ-like love is self-giving love. Just returning to these basic truths is so healing. It's reorienting. It's the training that's needed for us in the church with our marriage problems. But Paul goes on. In Ephesians 5.31, he writes this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? Here's Paul picking up what Jesus Said, and Jesus was picking up what Moses wrote in Genesis. And so it's a quotation again from Genesis 2.24. We saw it in Mark 10. We see it here now in Ephesians 5. Genesis 2.24 is rightly quoted in most marriages, most weddings. It's the same passage Jesus had quoted. And look where Paul goes with it. In Ephesians 5, he, he quotes this in verse 31, and then he says, Since we cannot understand the mystery of the two becoming one flesh, because it is such a mystery, Paul explains it. Ephesians 5:32, listen carefully. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The whole classic passage about marriage in Ephesians 5 boils down to, Paul says, the mystery points to, refers to, Christ and his church. If there's one thing we need to remember about divorce, it's that we should be focused on marriage, not divorce. And if there's one thing we remember about marriage, it's that it points to Christ and his church, that Christ would not treat us this way. And we have no permission then to treat our spouses this way. It gives us comfort to be sinners saved by grace, that Christ will not divorce us, if you will. He will not give up on his church, no matter how many blemishes he finds. Christ will not find something unacceptable in us and cast us away. Think of it. What would become of us if God were to deal with us the same way that the Pharisees in Mark 10 were advising husbands to deal with their wives? She burns a meal, that's it. You have one little sin, that's it. Where would we be? Really, this ought to stay with us, this concept. What prevents that from happening is Christ's faithfulness, his faithful love to us, which never ends. So keeping that in mind, we have two um, concluding applications. Again, I'll just repeat, this is not a topical sermon on marriage or divorce. Maybe not satisfy your one burning question about that. It was a sermon on one passage, out of many passages. The issues can be complex. I'll comment on a few right now. But... Just two closing applications. Number one, know God's design. Know God's design. The reason this is helpful to study, the reason that all persons of all ages, married or not, can study this passage is because we have to know God's design. God's design for marriage. God's design for the church and for the society regarding marriage. In the breakdown of our society, which has so many categories, we should grieve and be most concerned about the breakdown of marriage. Redefinition of marriage and even just the radical number of times divorces happen and so on. We are not to tear apart what God has joined. And those marriages that are even outside of Christ, not two Christians, are still marriages that God has joined them together. We do not join together what God has kept separate. That's also happening in a serial manner. People are doing it all the time and we as the church ought not to excuse sin or soft pedal the truth on this matter. Sometimes people are believing a lie. The lie goes like this. I'll be happier defying God's commandments and going my own way. They'll add to that lie by saying God's okay with it too, which isn't true. And so we in the church should present the truth. We should work to prevent breakups by repeating God's design, knowing God's design, telling God's design. We should do all, our, all of our parts. Each of us have a part in supporting marriages. We hold up the true teaching about marriage, about divorce, about remarriage. We prepare people for marriage prior to their weddings. We sustain couples in their lifelong marriages every step of the way as they encounter this issue or that issue, this hard patch or that rough season. When a marriage starts to falter, the church offers help and hope from scripture and wise counsel. When a marriage ends which it does. We adjudicate the case from the many passages of Scripture guided by His Spirit. And we protect children the best we can. Knowing God's design is our first application point. And our second and last one, know the supply of God's grace is bigger than you think it is. Our second application, know the supply of God's grace is bigger than you think it is. Some of you have gone through the pain of divorce yourselves. Uncomfortable sermon for you to hear. Know the grace of God is bigger than you think it is. God forgives sin. So God forgives divorce for those who repent. Search your heart. See what went wrong. Repent of your part. We also see a God is a God of compassion. God is a God of forgiveness. There's grace from God. Jesus shows incredible and deep compassion in this passage, sympathy across our study of the Gospel of Mark, understanding for people whose lives have not maintained the highest standards and the best practices, they're messing up their interpretation of Scripture, and he patiently and graciously teaches them the truth. Of course, in a perfect world, divorce would not happen. We don't have a perfect world. We have a broken world. We have a fallen world. We really do. That's why the Bible addresses the matter of marriage, the matter of divorce, the matter of remarriage and provides strength to keep marriages strong, to repair them. The Bible addresses divorce and what's proper and improper. But knowing God's grace, God's grace is bigger than we think it is. We imitate his compassion for those who are struggling, for those impacted by problems in this area of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We point them back to the grace of Christ. We remind them of the things that are true. I'll just end with this story. Pastor, it wasn't me. I always have to say it wasn't me. Someone might try to figure out who it is. Not in this church, it wasn't me. Pastor is visiting with parents. Parents receiving an emotional phone call. It was just supposed to be the pastor and the parents having a visit, but then the phone rang. So they take the phone call. It's from their recently married daughter. Okay? Pastor is visiting the parents. Parents get a phone call from their recently married daughter. It sounds kind of emotional. Uh, After several minutes on the phone, uh, the mother tells the father, could you please come and pick up the extension? A little awkward because now the pastor's left alone in the living room. Go ahead. And so he takes the call and extends. This is before cell phones, so there's two extensions in the house. Do I have to explain that to young people? (laughs) Two extensions in the house. They're both on the phone, mother and father on on the phone. The daughter in another location, pastor's waiting in the living room. He's out of earshot of the phone call, just quiet. But it only took a few minutes. At least the father uh, came back, finished talking on the phone, sat down, began to talk with the pastor again. Pastor, not trying to be nosy, but just out of out of concern, if you'd like to talk about it, uh, sounded intense. So what's she calling about? Well, she and her new husband, you know, the newlyweds, uh, had their first big fight. Uh, yeah. Father says uh, to the pastor, he says, "Well, she wants to come home." Oh. Yes. What did you tell her, if you don't mind my asking? The pastor inquired. The father says, I told her she was home. Maybe you could think about that on your drive home or later in the week as you have a few minutes. The weight of wisdom, the power of that instruction, the intense reminder, if it's a Christian perspective, that grace is ours. The supply of grace is bigger than you think it is, honey. I would do anything for you, sweetie, but this one's for God. You have to rely not on mom and dad anymore. You have to rely on your God. And it points us to this application point from Jesus' teaching here. Know that the supply of God's grace is bigger than you think it is. We are not left alone to walk through this. You know why marriage is hard? Because it's two sinners. You know why marriage is grand? Because it's... In a Christian marriage, it's two children of God supplied with God's grace. Apostle Peter says it this way, 2 Peter 1-3, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us